0: Welcome to the Thinklings Podcast, a conversation where good thoughts help renew the mind with the Word of God. I'm Charlie Carter, and I'm here with Tim Little and Andy Stearns. Let's jump into the conversation. Welcome to the Thinklings Podcast. In today's episode, Andy is going to talk about empty barns, no, not empty barns. Full barns. Yes. But empty souls. Is that the terminology? Full
1: barns, but empty souls.
0: So you can enjoy that. And uh, we're going to do that thing we always do in just a moment here. But a couple of announcements. I was, uh, one announcement will lead into the other announcement. Hey, if you're listening to this on November 8th, this Friday and Saturday, there is a drama at Faith. It is a live radio uh, production. like we, We're acting as if we're in the 40s doing a radio program with a live audience. You would be the live audience if you came to it. And it is uh, the radio show that we're performing is It's a Wonderful Life. And uh, I think you'll enjoy it very Christmassy. So you should come to that. I'm in it. Uh, this is three dramas in a row. So just give a little plug there. And I'm going to talk more about that in a moment um, in that other thing we do. But we were setting some things up for the drama over the weekend. And I was interacting with uh, a student at faith, Drake, and he made a comment to me. He said, I bought one of your thinklings crew necks.
1: He wore it to class. I and saw he's like,
0: I love that crew neck. Mm. It is so comfortable. He said, I like the design. It's simple. It looks nice and it is comfy. And so, Hey, Drake, if you're listening to this, thank you for buying that crew neck. And if you're not Drake and listening to this, which is everybody else, you need to go buy a crew neck. (laughs) I will. And I also will say that the t-shirts that we got are really nice t-shirts. They are super comfy. Yeah. I like them. Uh, So a lot of, a lot of great merchandise for the thinklings in the bookstore. Um, So uh, those are the two announcements. Uh, Come and watch me, Charlie, in the drama on Friday or Saturday. And there is no uh, admission. You don't have to buy a ticket. It's a free will. You can donate to the drama department if you want, but you can just come for free and have a great time with uh, you or significant other people uh, in your life. And uh, while you're here, if you come early enough, you could buy a crew deck on, uh, on uh, Friday. Uh, the bookstore's open until...
2: Until uh, the play starts.
0: Yeah, there you go. So... Come on out and uh, buy a crew neck and watch me in the drama. Mm. That being said, we have some thinklings business to tend to.
1: Books and business.
0: Let's talk about
1: some books. So this week, I'm going to cover a book. I'm just going to talk about a book we've, I think I've already ranked this way back in season one. I've recommended it multiple times, but it's a book called Tactics by Greg Kokel. Subtitle is A Game Plan for Discussing Your Christian Convictions.
0: I have to insert Greg Kokel, friend of the program, friend of the podcast.
1: Yes. And he really is. Every time we ever talk to him, he's just, he enjoys it so much.
0: Even though the last time we talked to him, he did refer to us as the Three Stooges.
1: He
2: did. He honestly did. He invited me for drinking a cigar at ETS. (laughs) And Tim
0: is going to take him up on that. (laughs) No,
1: I'm not. (laughs) So in his book, he, it's funny, there was, uh, the first year I used this, another teacher here sort of critiqued it and he was not a big fan of the book not against it, just he, you know, it could be manipulative. And another student who was in one of my classes said, yeah, I was on a public university campus and you know, you can do all these tactics, but they'll do them right back at you. And so I would agree with that. And I remember saying that I don't think his point is to win in that way or to critique or to like just manipulate anyways, as I was looking through the book, I just realized he actually addresses that, which means that one student who critiqued it, I think he'd read the book and he just must not have read this portion. Uh, another professor, I think he'd only heard the premise, so I give him a lot of slack. But this is what he says. He says, tactics, and you have to understand, listener, if you have not read it yet, you should. It's basically um, helpful conversation tips if someone else starts to overrun the conversation and uh, combined with some basics when it comes to logical fallacies. That's essentially what the tactics are. They're very helpful, and he is very clear in his... Uh, teaching of them. But he says this on looks like uh, we're 9% through the Kindle book. Sorry, Tim. Tactics are not manipulative tricks or slick ruses. They're not clever ploys to embarrass other people and to force them to submit to your point of view. They are not meant to belittle or to humiliate those who disagree so that you can gain notches on your spiritual belt. It's not the Christian life to wound, embarrass, or play one-upmanship with colleagues, friends, or even opponents but it's a common vice that everyone can easily fall into. There, he's quoting a guy. So he says this, I offer this warning for two reasons. First, these tactics are powerful and they can be abused. It's not difficult to make someone look silly when you master these techniques. A tactical approach can quickly show people how foolish some of their ideas are. Therefore, you must be careful not to use your tactics merely to assault others. Now, this reminds me of a student one year who read the book, went home, Said it was so helpful. Emailed me and said, you got to use this next year. And I said, okay, Willie Felderman, what we're you using in it in real life. And he's like, well, I basically just schooled my sister a lot with it. And so oh, he was using it to horrendous. <laughs> I know.
0: <laughs> Willie also friend of the podcast has not been a guest on the podcast. Maybe we should, uh, we, we could, we get him on here sometime. He,
1: he, he was, he was meaning well, but he was able to use it to win some arguments. Um, Now, that's not much. That's like a joke. But in all seriousness, this book is good. um, But if you used it to serve the flesh, then it would be wicked. And so it does offer you a help. uh, But he even recognizes that if used for the wrong reason, it could be bad. His second uh, warning is this. He says, the illustrations in this book are abbreviated accounts of real encounters that I've actually had. In the retelling, I may appear more harsh or aggressive than I was in real life. I'm not opposed to being assertive, direct, or challenging. However, I never intend to be more abrasive, to be abrasive or abusive. My goal rather is to find clever ways to exploit someone's bad thinking for the purpose of guiding her to truth, yet remaining gracious and charitable at the same time. My aim is to manage, not to manipulate, to control, but not to coerce, to finesse and not to fight. I want the same for you. And I appreciated that explanation because even if you're not reading this book, uh, in your conversation with your friends and people you encounter when there's a disagreement, you need to remember that you're not just trying to win an argument. You're trying to minister to them to serve them. So I really appreciate the tone of this book. And so if you haven't read it by now, I would just, I would recommend it. It's, it's a great book and it's not a hard read.
0: Yeah. You know, it's interesting. There, it seems like every class I have, uh, which have not been that many at this point in my teaching career. Uh, so all like three of them, four of them, uh, we get to a point where they're reading a textbook and there's a reason I've assigned that textbook. Uh, and one of them we talked about on the program before, Tale of Three Kings, which is a narrative mm-hmm. uh, style book where um he does take some poetic license to tell the story of those three kings, Saul, David, and Absalom. And the way that my classes are structured is they read something and then we have the intent is like Socratic discussion. And, and, and this, is, this one sticks in my mind because it just happened like two or three weeks ago. And it seems, seems like every class, there's a particular chapter or book where students are just like just reaming something like, that was so dumb. Like, like I did not agree with what the author was doing. Like, even like in, in this particular sense, at a very conservative Bible college, like, how dare he mess up the story of the Bible to make a point? And I'm like, well, Okay. If you're going to get that upset about Tale of Three Kings, then you better be really upset when you read like Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, because like what atonement view are we talking about now? And does Christ die to pay the witch? You know, like did you get upset about that when you read the book or did you just fall in love with it? Because it's Narnia and like just as an example, not that I actually think that's a huge error, but. I always have this conversation with students. It's like, you know, you should just remember to be charitable when you're reading other people and understand what the author's trying to accomplish. And and you're you're not above an author critiquing him. You're having a conversation with him. And it seems like that's a common occurrence where you can read something and you kind of posture yourself above it rather than actually reading it for the goal of education. So,
1: yeah, it's hard. I think it's a hard balance when you're first starting out because you're learning to be critical and you're learning to critique. Um, and then you're also seeing things that maybe you didn't notice before, especially with this book, it lets you see things. You learn to observe, see things. Yeah.
0: Do you find no. that to be an issue, uh, more prominent in sophomores? Possibly. Maybe because they're very wise morons, <laughs> which Charlie, is what Charlie sophomores means. <laughs> Anyway, so uh, what I've been working on recently, uh, I'm as I already mentioned, I'm in the drama. And so I really don't have a lot of time to free read. I'm working on trying to think through characters and try to remember lines in an effective way. And uh, so just make a couple of quick comments about It's a Wonderful Life. And I might have more comments as the weeks go and as we actually do the drama this week. This falls very, in a very similar category to last year with A Christmas Carol, where we, it fits with what we were just saying. You can recognize error. Like some of the theology that's being presented in this drama, you're like, wait, hold on. Like an angel gets wings. It earns its wings. Like, what are we talking about there? And, you know, like, um, and just kind of over the, the moralistic type of ideas, sometimes they don't always get the theology correct. And we're going to be okay with that. But just think about what, the drama is trying to exalt here or to, um, what does it call virtue? What does it call vice? And it sets as virtue life and actually someone in life who's very giving and humble and willing to serve other people. And then at the end of the story, he finds out that actually people are very thankful for him and are willing to give to him. It's, it's, it's a very, uh, I think a very powerful uh, idea that Um, you know, you do affect the people around you by the way that you serve them. And I mean, I can read into that as much as I want to, you know, um, you know, is that, is that the full intent of the drama? No, but I do think it, it does highlight as virtue, that character of the main, of the main, uh, character, George. And so, uh, I think it's, it's a good reflection and I'm looking forward to being a part of that. And, um, it is interesting that it does seem to exalt some things that we probably wouldn't be okay with. Like there's a moment where this really virtuous character, George, like goes and smokes a cigar with the, wit- the rich swindler, Mr. Potter. And you're like, wait, he smokes. And then there's another part where like the lovable uncle, Billy, uh, which played by me, is like completely drunk. And like, I'm supposed to act like I'm completely drunk and I don't know how to get home. And it's like a big laughable moment, but it's dramatizing and effectualizing being drunk. And it's actually portrayed in a way that you, oh, that's so cute and funny, but is it, you know, but anyway, um, I think we can overlook some of those issues and focus on, you know, it does exalt a, a, a character, a person of high character. So anyway, that's what I'm working on thoughts as I'm uh, preparing for it. Uh, some mostly good, but also not so good thoughts on it. So
1: can I interrupt before Tim shares his book? We forgot an announcement this week, Charlie. Did we really? Last week, an interview dropped on another podcast. Theologic. Oh, yeah. Rats, we did. Who was interviewed on our friends over at the Theologic podcast, Charlie? Dr. Tim Little. That's right. Dr. Little has an interview, uh, listener, over on another podcast called Theologic, where he talks about the book of Song of Songs. And so if you want to hear more Dr. Little, you should go over to that podcast and take a listen. And
0: what he talks about rhymes with one of my favorite snacks, checks. Anyway, <laughs> Tim, you, have a, you got a book for us?
1: So
2: on uh, It's a Wonderful Life, there's uh, some resources we brought into our bookstore. That's,
0: that is a 10 of a segue. That's like my best work right there.
2: That's absolutely. I'm sorry. And did you know you can get "It's a Wonderful Life" and it's like this book, and then they even have it comes with a little bell, so then you can seriously, seriously, you can like ring. Get
0: angels their wings. You can
2: keep giving angels wings. That's right. So you could buy that little kit with the book and the bell and. I do like the
0: memes that kind of riff off of that idea. Like every time this happens, this happens. Mm -hmm. And I saw one today. That every time someone sets a Christmas tree up before Thanksgiving, an elf murders a baby reindeer. And I thought that was pretty funny.
2: That's horrendous.
0: Anyway, so you've got a book for us.
2: Uh, Yes, I have a book for us. Okay, so um, I was on vacation last week. I went out to Missouri with some friends, the Hartwigs. We had a good time uh, playing some games, both board games and outdoor games. I took some, I did, did a little bit of reading, um... And then uh, I, uh, we've been working on our book "Song of Songs for Singles," which is really coming along. It's all edited, and then we're going to send it to a copy editor. Uh, and so we're moving along really well uh, on that. So stay tuned; we'll keep you keep you in touch with it. I wanted to study through dating some more, particularly where dating came from. I was thinking of adding a section in the, in the thirteenth chapter on just dating, courtship, and um, how to find a spouse type of a thing, but we ended up just not doing that. Still, I have done a little bit of reading on it. And one book I came across is called Labor of Love, The Invention of Dating by Moira. Uh, I don't know how to say her last name, W-E-I-G-E-L. So, uh, Weigel or Weigel. Anyway, this is a secular title. Um, it, It was interesting i find it fascinating reading uh secular literature when it comes to relationships Um, basically it's them trying to craft a uh, a path uh without god so they're lighting lighting up the way uh for themselves using logic sometimes general revelation and so sometimes they get some things right but uh often they're very off on oh great many things so this is not going to be a book i'm going to recommend in fact it in several points awakens love and so i don't recommend it particularly for young people but um a lot of our our generation thinks dating is just how people always found a spouse but that's actually not the case dating came about uh, around the time of the industrial revolution um people started moving into the cities and they were away from the 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 structures of society the parents Um, previously it was often a system called calling where um, a young man would call on a young woman and go to her house and visit with her and and the parents and the daughter and the son would um you know the kids would agree to it and then they would get married so anyway the parents were gone so dating became a thing Uh, I'm going to just kind of uh, read this paragraph uh, that she states on on page 7. The story of dating began when women left their homes and the homes of others where they had toiled as slaves and maids and moved to cities where they took jobs that let them mix with men. Previously, there had been no way for young people to meet unsupervised, and anyone you did run into in your village was likely to be someone you already knew. So dating came about during this industrial revolution. She kind of talks about that. Uh, this, this idea of dating uh, and, and she, how she's like, they toiled as slaves and maids, which is kind of funny to me that she kind of cast the home life in that, from that kind of a perspective, because as she develops the stories, uh, the, these women that became shopkeepers and a shop girl, a shop girl was one of the terms she used a lot, and a laundry girl, basically the, that life was very hard. It was very difficult on them and so it's like they went from one type of slavery as she defines it to a different kind of slavery uh the slavery in the big city where they often didn't have enough money in fact a lot of times the young lady would go out with a young man because he had money and she could then not have to buy dinner (laughs) Mm -hmm. so um it was actually a pretty pretty difficult scenario that they moved into um I'm going to read another paragraph here. If marriage is the long-term contract that many daters still hope to land. So she does this. She kind of interacts a little bit with the old, and then she jumps into the new. And it's a fascinating read. I thought it was an enjoyable read. Uh, But if marriage is a long-term contract that many daters still hope to land, dating itself often feels like the worst, most precarious form of contemporary labor, an unpaid internship. You cannot be sure where things are heading. But you try to gain experience. If you look sharp, you may get a free lunch. (laughs) It's like a really down picture of it. Wow. I thought it was funny. Um, So anyway, this is, again, a secular book. And so there is like some bad language in it. I'm going to clean this section up. But one of the reasons I also read this book is just to kind of substantiate the perception that people have of... Uh, or the perceptions that our Christian singles even have, that they are, I think, fighting. They're trying to deny it. Um, But truly, men are attracted to beautiful women, and um, women are attracted to rich men. And uh, this book, as secular literature, basically is just like, that's exactly right. That's the way that it is. Uh, Here she interviews or narrates some kind of a conversation between uh, a Yolanda I don't know who she is, but I'm just going to read this. Let's get it straight. Yolanda said, men love beautiful women, and beautiful women love rich men. And uh, and so then she goes and she uses some kind of perverse language, and she elaborates upon that further. And she connected that to even the ancient shop girls. And I don't know how much of that's actually really true, but how a shop girl would like to work in a shop, because then she would be exposed to rich men whom she might be able to then create an interest and then potentially marry. So she kind of connected the whole thing. Um, it was kind of, uh, I thought, fascinating. So she has several chapters in the book. You have the um, the first chapter is Tricks, which is I thought was an interesting chapter title, but it's basically all of the junk that's going on in the world. And then the second is Likes, How who do you date? You date pe- people who like the things that you like. Um, so likes, and there is a homosexual agenda through the book. Chapter three is outs. And so she's talking about basically um, homosexuals and them uh, outing and revealing who they really are. She had a chapter on school and how school changed the whole dating landscape where previous, previously there wasn't really co-ed schools. They were all gendered. So there, there, there wasn't the mixing of the genders. So you didn't have dating. It wasn't ever an issue. So uh, there's a whole section, she has a whole chapter on schools. Uh, And then studies, freedoms, niches, I'm not going to go through all this. I'm going to jump to the end now in plans. I have this one chapter, uh, at the end of chapter 9, she has this um, quote, I'm going to read it. How many career women have grown into exactly the women they planned, only to find that the future they thought they wanted was not what they expected? This is truly what uh, many women are are re are learning as they do grow older and then have these careers i'm gonna keep reading this is a secularist writing this remember how could it not be disappointing after so much work like the housewife of brett betty frieden's feminine mystique which by the way that's a very popular book from the 60s um i'll just leave it there so, like the housewife of Betty Friedan's Feminine Mystique, I imagine the career woman who returns to work two weeks after giving birth dismayed. The new Feminine Mystique has created a new problem with no name that feelings disarming, that feels disarmingly familiar. Is this all? Is this what all of that was for? When they hand their child off to like some kind of a daycare company. Okay, so um, I thought that was just an interesting quote from a secularist of the labor of love as they seek to find light on the path that is their light. And I was kind of like, okay, what's the goal? What, I mean, what's the real solution? And whenever you're reading through a book, particularly a secular book, what is their idea of of uh, the way things are supposed to be? And it really was very mm-hmm. not that great. But in chapter ten, she has this, it's called help. So I was like, okay, is this where she's going to actually present her eschatology? Which, by the way, I'm not talking about eschatology like in times, but what is it that that's their utopia? Yeah. And she talks about settling, and she talks about it rather affirmingly, affirmingly, like you need to settle. Right. Exactly. And wow. she even referenced some articles uh, that people said they need to settle. Um, she's not there though. She she dials it back, but but she realizes one of the problems that a lot of couples have, a lot of singles have, uh, uh, daters have, is that their ideas are just so crazy mm-hmm. that they're never going to find anybody. So she has a, this one uh, quote here marriage isn't a passion fest, she wrote. It's more like, she's quoting somebody else, by the way, but she speaks of it rather affirmingly. It's more like a partnership formed to run a very small, mundane, and often boring nonprofit business. LOL. That is, (laughs) that is, wow. I think that was just hilarious because of our world's like sexualization and everything, (laughs) and they paint it like some, but here this this person is just saying, you know what, that's not what it is. Yeah so and then she then writes if they want to make it through this drudgery she tells her readers that they should hurry up and lock a partner down so in other words marry him and that was the title of the article she interacted with uh marry him so she did not she still had some issues with it Uh, she didn't like that idea um but getting again to just her eschatology i think her whole idea of settling has affected her uh she I'm not going to get into that. Um, I'm already going kind of long. In the afterwards, she has just this chapter called Love, and uh, in the afterwards, she kind of she references God and she actually refers to the three eros, philos, and agape, and she talks about agape love. Love can be given without expectation of return. She says that we might start by being kinder and more generous toward others. Like, yeah, that's a good place to start. You know, are you going to actually get there? But the answer is no, she doesn't get there. Uh, the solution is more of this self-inward, uh, self-help inward thing where we need to band together into a political entity. And uh, let's see here. Banding together and organizing, she says, for political change, which will help women uh, to to break off of the shackles of, because having kids, it like messes up their careers and everything. So she's like, we need to have better... Uh, uh, solutions the government needs to provide better solutions for women to help them out in this way so then in the very next paragraph then she says our challenge is to find ways to honor love properly without falling back into outdated patterns see that she realizes people after they date they what do they do they they're like the temptations to go back to these outdated
1: patterns that's so funny yeah She's, she's recognizing the order the of problem. creation. Yeah. Like Tim yeah. Keller in his book, the meaning of marriage in the beginning, he uh-huh. talks about this, but like biblically, Yeah. he's like the romantic movement, all this like mm-hmm. sexualization is like, you're getting the wrong idea. That's not what marriage is. Yeah. And it's funny. She's getting there because she's seeing the bankruptcy, right? Of it, but she has no gospel solution. No, there's no gospel None. solution. That's it's why like, she rejects she,
2: this Very hopeless. Yeah. yeah. So instead she says, we might think of this as a third secu- sexual revolution. Uh, We should certainly not corral sex back into marriage, though I have criticized the dating market because it is. That's why it's labor of love. It's like there's so much of it that's basically economics. Economics drives so much of it. I am not saying that everyone should just get out of it by settling down. So she brings out that idea as well. Rather, we must find ways to celebrate the myriad kinds of love that sex and romance lead to. Okay, and so then she just goes off in basically her secular worldview. Um, so that's uh, Labor of Love by Moira Vigo. Uh, it does say at the end in, in on, the, on the, the dust jacket... Uh, that she is working on a PhD in comparative literature at Yale University. And after years of first-person research on dating, okay, years of first-person research on dating, <laughs> she is off the market. <laughs> it sounds like the Anyways. Do you see how even yeah. in the, yeah. it's like this. uh Yeah. <laughs> economic terminology Yeah, that's of interesting that's intriguing. So labor of love i'm not putting it on the goodness scale i'd probably still put it on the shack stack there's a lot of very questionable stuff or there's just it's secular i mean it's secular hey. secular secular and she's talking about sex all the time and so uh this is not something that i recommend at all
0: slap it on the shack stack shack stack wham okay andy you want to give us like a 30 second preview of this episode
1: yeah so we've been talking about death and uh Those sorts of topics when I've been doing some episodes this uh, season. This one, we're going to go through the parable of the man who builds bigger barns. And what's interesting is he doesn't count on his death. And if he had taken Solomon's advice, it might have turned out differently for him. Let's have a conversation about death again. uh, This time we're going to read a parable that Jesus... uh, shares and we're going to start in Luke 12. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to Luke 12. If not, we'll just go ahead and start and you can listen. So I'm going to start reading in verse 13 and I'm going to go through the whole parable down to 21. And just a tip, uh, when you're in a narrative passage, that would be any type of a story or a historical event in the Bible, you don't want to only look at like three verses. You want to look at the whole story because it's all one unit.
0: Can you give me that passage one more time?
1: Yeah. Luke chapter 12, we're going to start in verse 13. Awesome. Thanks. All right. So just if you're doing your Bible reading, if you're doing Bible study, if you're planning to teach a lesson, you know, if you're going to, if you get an opportunity to preach for some reason and you're in a narrative, just make sure you're looking at the whole passage because that's the intent here. So here, Jesus is going to tell a parable, but we want to make sure we grab the context And then we hear what his parable is. So verse 13, Luke chapter 12. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or an arbiter over you? Which is ironic because he's the judge of all men. (laughs) Verse 15. And Jesus said to them, Take care to be on your guard against all covetousness for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions and then he told them a parable saying the land of a rich man produced plentifully and he thought of himself he thought to himself what shall i do for i have nowhere to store all my crops and he said i will do this i will tear down my barns and build larger ones and there i will store my grain with my goods What I really enjoy about this parable is that it forces us again to grapple with the issue of death and eternity. And I think that there's some practical lessons we can take away from this. I just want to do a little bit of context in verse 13. When the person in the crowd says, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me, the the person was probably coming to Jesus and he had a complaint against his brother in that time when the parents would die they would leave inheritance to their children. If you were firstborn, generally you got a double portion. So let's say you've got three kids and you're one of three. The first kid would get two portions and each of the other kids would get one portion each. So you divide the inheritance in four and give double to the first one. It'd be the same way for the rest if you have more kids than that. Well, here probably it sounds like though maybe one of the brothers has all the inheritance and he's not yet dispersing it maybe he's arguing, maybe he's got some legal ease, something going on. And so this man is going to Jesus saying, Jesus, tell him to give me what he owes me. It's interesting too, because Jesus says to the man, who made you a judge or an arbiter or who made me a judge or an arbiter over you? Now, Jesus is the judge of all the earth. I think here though, if I'm making a guess at it, I think Jesus is saying, why are you coming to me? And the point is the guy just wants the money. He just wants that. He doesn't actually want Jesus to be his judge and, and, and follow him. He just wants Jesus to sort this out for him, which you see in the next warning in verse 15. Jesus then says either to him and maybe the crowd standing around too, take care or be careful, be cautious, and be on your guard against covetousness. Uh, it's, it's interesting. He doesn't say don't be covetous. That goes without saying, the warning is to be on your guard against it. So let's start there. Listener, I think that covetousness is something that sneaks up on us. It's something that we can adopt and propagate and live in without being aware of it, because it is kind of natural to look to get things that we need in life. But then the covetousness is when you're going too far in that area. All right. So here's, here's what I want to point out. Now we're going to do a little bit of Greek. That's okay. Um, the word covetousness there in Greek is pleonexis, pleonexis, uh, nexias, sorry. And it, it's literally the word related to riches, pleon, in the New Testament. What I want to ask you guys, not Greek, just English here, where else in the Bible is the word covet or covetousness very prominently found? There's a really big command that I'm thinking of. The Ten Commandments. Excellent. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, okay. So the Ten Commandments. Can one of you guys try to describe or define covetousness for me? Because we don't really speak like that. Like, I, I don't talk about covetousness very often. It's not something we always talk about, but what, how would you define it if you had so
0: to? do you? What's the Hebrew word in the Old Testament for covet?
1: I don't know. I could look it up. Would you I, like me to? I
0: mean, that'd be an interesting. So...
2: so The idea of coveting is you're wanting something that's not yours. Yeah. So you want your neighbor's cow, donkey, wife, possessions, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. Okay.
0: And I do think, so I think James 4, it's very, it's Mm -hmm. parallel to a normal desire, but it is a distinction. Mm -hmm. There is a desire, a lust that you don't get and you murder, but then number two, you covet and Mm -hmm. cannot obtain, you fight. And so, but I think the difference is it's, it's wanting something that not only do you not have it, but it's specifically, you're wanting it from someone else who has it.
2: Okay. So keep going. The Hebrew word is chamad to desire, do not desire.
1: So just the word for desire. Yeah.
2: So the, Interesting. and this word is used frequently for the Lord and that the Lord does whatever he desires, desires. Mm. And so don't, do not desire something that is your
1: Neighbors. Okay, so listener, this is just for fun, and but I I still think it's interesting. When I grew up and I heard "do not covet," I was always confused by that word, and we don't use it in our day to day speech. Here, I'm looking the word up in Greek in the New Testament, and it's plan nexus and that word means greediness, covetousness, or avarice. It's the idea of like greed. However. When you go to the Old Testament, it's written in Hebrew, so you don't look up the Greek word, but there was a generation of Hebrews whose children could only speak Greek, and they had to make a translation of the Old Testament into Greek. Do you know what Greek word, Covet, in the Decalogue is translated with?
0: I'm going to take Pleonexia for 500.
1: You are wrong.
0: I'm wrong. Oh, okay.
1: Oh, I, I figured I thought you were teeing that something. up for me. No, it's not the same word. <laughs> it's epithumia. It's epithumia.
0: Which is just desire.
1: Yeah, it's the word for lust yeah. in the New Testament. It fits with the Hebrew with the chamad to Exactly. Desire. And so what I want to point out is that for me, it was very helpful to look back at the Ten Commandments. And when it says, thou shalt not covet, it means don't lust. Okay. Was this the surprise? That was the surprise.
0: He told us before we started recording that there was going to be... A surprise and that was the surprise
1: it was surprising to me i i, I remember thinking i don't why know don't if they that just
0: makes say good to,
1: <laughs> we often show
0: the we often to use another greek word we often display the splank of of our podcast <laughs> the the innards the guts of how it gets made um and that would be yeah
1: well I, I think what's helpful okay so here's the practical takeaway from that um i think someone like a hebrew scholar like maybe my friend right here, Tim, should find out if a better translation of the 10 commandments is just do not lust. Covet has the idea, like what Charlie was saying a minute ago, that you want something you shouldn't have, or you want something that you don't have, or you want something that someone else possesses, but would lust be a better translation because it's just the word desire in Hebrew? Anyways, let's not sort that out here. That's just for fun. Okay, listener, let's get back to the passage. So I think there's three elements of instruction. That this passage gives to us. Um, the first element of instruction is this. So, the word pleonexus, which is being used here for greed, Jesus says, be on your guard against greed, be on your guard against coveting, be on your guard against, essentially, it's discontentment. It's like what we talked about a year ago or like two seasons ago. What then does Jesus prescribe as the antidote for being susceptible to greed? Notice that he says this, he tells this story about a rich man who unwittingly dies when he's not expecting it. So I want to propose this to you, listener, the antidote for greediness in your life is thinking eternally and thinking about death. Now, again, I'm not trying to be a goth or get all dark or wear a black cloak and black nail polish and all that. But I do think that we live in an age where we're very ephemeral, we're very Uh, In the moment, we're very, we just think about what's going on right now in my life, and we don't think about what's coming in the next life. So, Jesus could have said, be on your guard against covetousness, and then he could have told a story about a man who broke the law or some other kind of a parable, but his parable talks about death. So, here's my thought if you find that there's a string of discontentment in your life, a string of greediness, a string of covetousness and being dissatisfied with what you have, ask yourself this question. Are your thoughts fully consumed with this life? Are you thinking about the next life? My assumption or my guess because of the way Jesus handles this sin is that perhaps you are focusing purely on or mostly on this life right now. I know that for me, when I really get wrapped up in what's going on, I get this tunnel vision and I stop stepping back and thinking, what's God doing? What's the whole plan of life? What's my purpose in living? And then what will life be like one day? So takeaway number one from this parable, the antidote to covetousness and discontentment, I think, according to what Jesus is doing, is thinking eternally. So you should do that. You should. ask yourself, when's the last time you thought about your death? Now, the second big takeaway that I think Jesus wants us to get through is that you need to recognize that death could come at any moment. Death could come at any moment. Now, notice what happens. There's a rich guy and it says in verse 16, his land produces plentifully. Uh, that's actually in this context. That's actually an indication of the possible blessing of God, because God said under the covenant that if you're following my, my commands, I'm going to let your see your uh, land produce in season. And you're going to have plenty. So here's this guy. I think you could even say he's being blessed of the Lord. And then he thinks to himself this thought in verse 17: What am I going to do? Because I have nowhere to store my crops. All right, I'll toss this out to you guys. Um, in the in the Bible. And let's limit it to the Old Testament, but we can bring in the New Testament as well. But let's start with the Old Testament. What are you to do with riches, according to like what God would have you say? Like, What would God want you to do with riches?
0: You're the Old Testament guy. Don't look at me.
2: <laughs> okay. I don't know. Do you want me to start or you want to go?
0: Yeah, you start. You're the Old Testament guy. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
2: okay. So... <laughs> Uh, the first responsibility that uh, an Old Testament man would have would be to help those who are uh, poor in the land. For example, Boaz. Uh, what does he do? Um, he goes out of his way to help Ruth, who is a widow and uh, dependent upon the gracious and merciful um, giving and 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 uh, provision uh of a a rich man so he's the rich man that gives the the wealth away ecclesiastes chapter 11 has a similar idea where they're casting their bread on the waters in acts of generosity uh so loving and serving the the ones that are um the unfortunate in society so then that would be number one and then the second is to enjoy god's blessing God has blessed you. He's given you a great deal. So consume it as uh, in, gratitude for, uh, in gratitude to a gracious God who's blessed you.
0: So my mind wants to go to there is paying of tithes in the Old Testament, but I can't think of, I, I can't off the top of my head think of like a Levitical law to that extent, but I know that that is there. Um, Melchizedek paying tithes and things like that. So is there a responsibility in the the legal code of like, you have to give a tithe, right? Yes.
2: There's the first fruits that are supposed to go to God. So that would be the first component would be to tithe and then also to give offerings. You can go above and beyond the tithe. And then would be the, what I prescribed with helping the
1: orphan and the widow, and then enjoying the blessing God's given. Good. Okay. And let's go to the New Testament now. Can you think of anything that the New Testament would say about wealth or what to do with money?
0: I guess you started before, so I guess I should start now. So do not love money. Like this command. That's good.
1: Very good. Like okay. um, don't love the money. Yeah. That fits not, really well with this passage, actually. Yeah. Okay, what else? There,
0: there are commands of that. Uh there's this guy I know that uh talked about that shrewd steward <laughs> parable. Ooh. And Talking about like what are we how are we supposed to be? Mm-hmm. stewards of of money, mm-hmm. making friends in eternity, mm-hmm. which that kind of comes up Man. in his passage too. um so, but i do I do think primarily that parable is also kind of an indictment of the love of mm-hmm. of, of wealth,,
2: yep. so first Timothy six, I usually go to first Timothy six because people think, what I share in the Old Testament, Well, it's different now because it's New Testament. And I'm like, yeah, not really. Uh, so First Timothy six seventeen command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty because wealth makes you think highly of yourself. So don't be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. God actually wants you to enjoy the blessings that he's given you. Then it says, let them do good that they may be rich in good works, Mm. ready to give, Mm. willing to share, Mm. storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come, the time to come, that they may lay hold on eternal life. So the message, I think, is consistent through both Old Testament and New Testament on how you handle wealth.
1: That's really excellent.
0: Where is it? Is it also... yeah, so I, that's not where I thought you were going to go. I thought you were going to read 1 Timothy six, six, because Ecclesiastes, which is about wealth, you know, Solomon is incredibly wealthy, and what is ultimately he trying to say is you need to learn to be content. Yes, First Timothy six six, godliness with contentment is great gain. Another way I could say that is profit. Uh, for we brought, we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. He's probably alluding to Job there. But if we have food and clothing with these, we should be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into Mm. a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs.
2: That seems to be more applied to the person that doesn't have riches. The point is don't desire the riches and be content with what you have. And that's why then at the end of the chapter, he says, hey, guess what? You have money.
1: Sure. Don't be proud. Don't, yeah, do all this other stuff. Well, that's good because I had a passage in mind and it wasn't any of those. So there's a correction Paul gives. He corrects a certain kind of person in Ephesians chapter four. Ephesians chapter four, verse 16 on is one of my go to sanctification passages because it describes historically, you put off your old lifestyle, you put on your new lifestyle and your mind was renewed. And then presently you're to continue to mirror that in all areas. And so if you get to verse uh, chapter four, verse 25, he then does a bunch of therefore statements and therefores follow the same pattern. Generally, there's a, a negative thing to leave behind. There's a positive thing to embody. And then there's a renewing reason for doing that. In verse 28, he says, let the thief. Okay. This is someone who steals things let the thief no longer steal. There's your put off your prohibition. He says, but, so here comes the contrast, rather let him labor doing honor, honest, excuse me, work with his own hands. So the thief should stop thieving, put that off, and then he should put on hard work, honest labor. Now he's going to give a reason for this. And you might think it's Something like because it's wrong to steal, or because it breaks God's law, or because it dishonors God, or something like that. But notice the reason given. Okay, this is really telling. He must do honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. So even the very act of working hard. Earning money and earning more than you need is not just for you. It's so that you can help others in need. So look at this. We have an entire scripture testimony that riches, according to God, should be enjoyed and then they should be used to help other people or used to serve the Lord. So I want to just, before I move any further in the passage, I want to, I want to call out anyone who's listening to this at any time in history Has God blessed you with wealth? If he has, look at this parable. Do you look like this guy? Are you taking your wealth and just storing it up for yourself? Or are you doing something for other people who might need it? There's a lot of options out there. There's people in probably your own local church. Who have needs that you could bless. You could do it anonymously through your pastor. You could give your pastor some money and say, Hey, I think this couple or this family needs something. Help them out. Um, you could do this. I mean, we're a little biased here, but there's a lot of students who want to come to college but can't afford it, and or they come and then they don't come back because they don't have money. Maybe you could, you know, donate to a scholarship or something like that. There's also ministries out there that churches are involved in. You could be taking your money and using it for something eternal. Now, I'm not trying to shame anyone, but many Christians are not in the position where they can do that, even if they wanted to. So if that's you today, if God's gifted you and blessed you with wealth, probably through your own hard work and, and, and good work ethic, can you do something uh, different than what this man did? So now look in verse 18. He sees the problem in 17 is he he's got too much, I'm going to say money, even though it's crops, because that would have been his wealth. And so what's he going to do with this wealth? Now, I don't think it's wrong that he's going to tear down barns and build bigger ones to store all his grain. I don't think that act in and of itself would be wrong. You just have to store your your wealth. But look at the motivation that you see in verse 19. I think this is what Jesus is critiquing. He says, and I will say to my soul, soul, you've got ample good laid up for many years what should he then do? He says, relax, eat, drink, be merry. Now, again, we just read a host of verses in the Old Testament and the New Testament that say that God wants us to enjoy our wealth. Here though, I think we could see that the indication is this man is very self-centered and he's only thinking of this life. He's only thinking of what he wants. And so here he is, and he's going to build up barns and he's just going to please himself for the rest of his life. So the first thing that I think this passage is saying is that uh, the antidote to discontent and greed and coveting is for you to think about eternity and stop thinking about just the present. But the second big takeaway from this passage is death could come in any moment. Now this man, he's making plans. He is making plans for the future. And God says, fool, tonight your soul is required of you. And the things that you've stored up or prepared, whose will they be? That's a huge indication that this man was not thinking about the future and he wasn't thinking he could die. Um, again, I don't I don't want this to be a downer, but Ecclesiastes 7 says that this is not a downer. This is how you become wise. You think about your death. Now notice Ecclesiastes 7.4, uh, 7, excuse me, the heart of the wise. Okay. The wise person is in the house of the funeral, but the heart of the fool is where the house of mirth or the party. Look at what scripture calls this man. God says, you fool. Now, what was he thinking about? Eating, drinking, being married. I mean, this is parallel to Ecclesiastes 7.4. So what I would say to you today is if, if uh, you're living your life for right now, what, what would help you is to think about your death. Think about your future. You could die tomorrow. Now I'm not trying to be morbid, but what if leaving your home today, leaving your place of work, wherever you're going, you walk out and you get hit by a car. Think about all of the things in life. You have think about all the irons in the fire. Okay. You got a project at work. You got some thing at home you're building. you got a hobby you're involved in. you got a video game you're trying to beat. And you haven't beat it yet. You've got a book series you're trying to get through. Whatever it is, imagine tomorrow morning you die. Are you glad that you put all the energy you did into whatever that endeavor was? Um, we were talking recently to a guy who had gone through a very difficult situation. And uh, he said after the death situation that he had faced. He said things after that, that were so important to him before just weren't after that. And it was good stuff that changed. So if you have a value system that's very earthly, you might need to think about death and your own death a little more. That's actually biblically good. It's not a downer. It's not, it may be uncomfortable, but this is what scripture I think wants you to do. All right. Third takeaway, third takeaway You should store up treasure in your relationship with God or store up treasure for eternity, store up treasure elsewhere. I'm not sure how to, what to say, but notice what it says in verse 21. Here's the point of the parable. Jesus says this, he says, so is it with the one who lays up treasure for himself. And I think that's key. That's the evidence of this man being selfish and is not rich toward God. What are you currently working for? So take stock of all the areas of your life. Are you working toward things that are eternal? Are you trying to store up treasures in heaven? That's a cliche phrase, but it comes right out of this, storing up treasures for heaven. So let's, uh, let's try to think that through. So maybe here's where I'll ask my two friends here to help me. Scripture here wants us to stop just thinking about the present and to start thinking about the future. Scripture wants us to store up treasures in the next life, not only this life. If we were to brainstorm some ways for us to follow that through, to be rich toward God, not toward just ourselves, what are some practical ways you guys can think of where our listeners and us could be laying up riches in a bank that's in heaven that we will have eternally?
2: Your two main commodities are time and money. We use money to get more time, and we invest our time to acquire more money. So how do you use your time, and where do you spend your money? So with time, a lot of times we, un- we spend our time with entertainment, entertainment. Uh, whether it's watching some kind of a video series or playing video games. Um, But this entertainment mentality is a consumption of time that has no eternal value. Uh, So I would encourage you to evaluate how you're spending your time. That would be um, one area to address concerning how you could develop more of an eternal perspective and laying up treasure
1: in heaven. That's really good. Evaluate how you're using your time. I like that. So
0: we all had a previous theology professor, Dr. Myron, who had a correlation in his mind with the crowns and the rewards of heaven, with uh, the ability, part of the reward, why those are valuable in eternity, is that it will correlate to our ability to magnify the glory of God. And he was not like real distinct on what he thought with this because he's just kind of, I don't want to say flippantly, but he's kind of spitballing, you know, like what he thinks some of these things will be like. And we don't know, you know, we do have some descriptions of crowns and, you know, that could just be like, is there a literal crown? Well, the crowns they're probably referring to. And some of those passages aren't like metal crowns, they're probably like olive branches. But anyway, so like thinking on that realm, like, are you doing things that are increasing capacity to glorify God and the correlation of doing those things well here, which will translate to future reward and glorifying God eternally. Uh, And kind of what you're saying, like think about like the video game thing you mentioned, who does that glorify? You? In what way does that <laughs> magnify God? Or you get done with it and you're like, "Look at me!" Or there's a lot of things in life that are that are like that. So what you know I think you could ask that question like, in what way does this glorify him? And I think there is a direct correlation. If it glorifies him here, it's probably going to help you glorify him more there. So that would be an eternally valuable thing.
1: I really like the way you phrase that question. Not just does it glorify God? It's how does it glorify God? I think that's the key. That's really helpful.
0: And and I, I I don't know if I'd call myself unique, but I think I, you know, I beat the drum a lot. I kick the horse that's already dead a lot. That sanctification is a part of your glorification your sanctification is you becoming more like Christ. If that's genuine, you are glorifying Christ here. So as you just faithfully walk through trials in your life, and you respond in repentance, what's happening? You're storing up eternal riches. Like the way that you just live your life in the normal ebbs and flows, you know, and not living a fleshly life when bad things happen is eternally valuable because it's a part of your glorification, which is a part of his glorification.
1: Yeah, this is really good. So, uh, Tim is saying one way that we can find out if we're storing up treasures of another life is asking, how are we using our time? Charlie, you're saying, how are we glorifying God? How, or how does what we're doing glorify God? I like this. Um, I might add one more just so we have three. Um, what is it that you're, uh, aiming at in your life? What are you trying to accomplish? So I'm I'm thinking of Colossians three, seek the things that are above. If someone were to take a panoramic picture of your life, what would they say? Not you. Okay. What would they say you're pursuing in your life? They would look at how you're spending your money. They would look at how you're spending your time. They would look at what you've been doing for five years, what you've been doing for 10 years. So what is it you're pursuing? Are you aiming at, let's let's just, I know that for a lot of our listeners are much younger and so they may not be at the age where they're thinking about this, but are you aiming at retirement? And is retirement like this man in the passage? You just, you're going to get there and it's going to be great. You're not going to have to work. I know some retired people who they retire and then they go volunteer their time at ministries. That's awesome. Praise the Lord for that. It's not bad to enjoy retirement. If God has, blessed you and your business endeavors and you've got cash and you are retiring and things are, are, are comfortable. That's not bad. But then what are you aiming to do now? Um, I would say, what are you trying to accomplish in your life overall? All right. Do you guys have any other final thoughts before we wrap this up? I just have one you've already hit on it, but I just want to even reinforce if
2: God has blessed you with financial um, blessings to look for people and look for ways that you can love others. Um, there are, there are opportunities, uh, and pursue them. Uh, use the substance with which God's blessed you for his glory. Um, yeah, I think that's just it. It's just sometimes we want to draw back because there's so much abuse of asking people to donate money. Um, Health and wealth gospel. You're not getting saved or anything from this. This is this is you loving God and using the blessing He's given you um, as a, as an act of gratitude. Do that.
0: Uh, nothing really comes to mind, but you know I think Tim's answer is pretty good.
1: <laughs> so, listener, today I think as you walk away from this, just do an internal inventory. Are you covetous? Are you greedy? Is there a dissatisfaction with what you have? We've talked about contentment a lot on the podcast. Perhaps related to that, ask yourself, are you fully consumed or mostly consumed with the present life you live? And then secondly, has God blessed you with wealth? If he has, what are you doing for him with that wealth? Are you hoarding it? Are you guarding it jealously? Are you scared to death of, of uh, not having it? Or, Are you viewing it as a tool that you can use to glorify Him?
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of the Thinklings Podcast. We would love to hear from you. If you have any feedback, suggestions, or potential topics that you'd like us to discuss, you can contact us through our email, thinklingspodcast at gmail.com. Remember, don't let this conversation end with this podcast. Read good books, talk about them with your friends, and always continue to cultivate your mind. See you next time on the Thinklings Podcast.